Hello, Kira Dyer here. Welcome to episode 11 of Loving an Addict. This podcast with my husband, Duff, is inspired by a great loss, our daughter, Emma, who passed away from an accidental overdose. Our desire is to spread awareness, love, and hope to also help those who are struggling to love the addict in their lives because we know that that person is so much more than just an addict. This week is fun. We get to interview another friend of Emma's who was in her first treatment with her. I love Abby's attention to detail in regards to her recovery. She knows what she needs and she knows how to stay clean. And she's very inspiring. I love that she was able to make some really hard decisions at just the tender age of 18. And I believe everything that she shares with us today is going to be able to help people who are in active addiction or who are recovering and also family members who struggle to know how to best love the addict in their lives. Welcome to the podcast, Abby. Thank you. (laughs) It's not just Abby, it's Emma's Abby in my phone. (laughs) That's right. So I guess we could start off with, how do you know Emma? Okay. So me and Emma, we met in, it was both of our first treatment programs. I was 17. I think she was 17 when she went into. She was, yeah. I remember the first time I ever met her, I was having a tantrum because I wanted to walk from Utah to South Carolina to go see my father (laughs) and she was like hey she's kind of freaking out in there is she okay and I was like are you gonna effing tell on me and she was scared of me and then that started a beautiful friendship (laughs) there you go there you go so how long had Emma been in the program before you showed up I was there I think three months before she got there oh you were there before she was yeah okay And help our thousands of listeners (laughs) understand why it was that you were sent there in the first place. I had a whole slew of issues. I was using drugs with my father, started doing that at 15. So that had been going on for two years before I was sent away. And I think the straw that finally broke the camel's back with my mom was I was assaulted by drug dealer slash not really good guy and she's like wait yeah, wait you need are you to trying do- to tell me that there are drug dealers that aren't good guys <laughs> <laughs> is that what you're trying to They're say all terrible <laughs> all right continue yeah i said my mom was like we need to do something and my grandpa and my uncle and my mom everybody all teamed together and sent me off that was one of the hardest things my mom had ever done I hated her for it for the first three months, sat on my butt, didn't do anything. But then I realized I need to be here. I had the opportunity to work on my stuff and my drug use was so severe that if I didn't fix it, I was going to die. And thank you, Jesus, that I realized that at 17, that, okay, this is nothing to joke around with. I need to get it together. So yeah, um, I've been clean from opioids and cocaine since April 8th, 2015. Wow. Yay. So Seriously. this year will be nine years. I'm excited. Um, yeah. You you know that that's rare to yeah. actually say that. Yeah. I have, I have mixed feelings about it. I feel more survivor's guilt than anything because I don't understand. But I also know that at the same time, that means maybe I'm here for something. Maybe I'm here to help somebody else. 
Yeah. I struggle with that a lot, but. Do you want to explain a little bit about survivor's guilt? Oh yeah. So basically it's where you feel guilty when you make it out of your situation, whether it be drugs, abuse, anything like that. And someone else doesn't. So I've had a lot of friends that couldn't get away from drugs, didn't want to make it out. Some have passed away. And it's just like, why did I survive? And it's just a lot of questioning that. Sure. I think that's natural, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is that a weight for you still? Is, is that hard? Or are you at a place where you're okay with it? I'm okay with it because I see the brighter side of it. The survivor's guilt got to the point where I was feeling really suicidal this past November. So I went to the hospital. They put me on suicide watch and I was like, oh no, I've made a mistake. And I was planning in my head how to run away. Luckily they let me go after six, seven hours. I was like, I really would just, please let me handle this outpatient because I got off my meds and I was spiraling and just a lot of nonsense, but I got it together back on my meds. But yeah, I can't let it weigh on me like that anymore. I just have to try my best to turn it into something positive. Well, it's interesting at the beginning, you said, thank you, Jesus, which of course, amen. Is that something that Jesus would tell you to feel guilty about? So it's like understanding where those thoughts come from Mm -hmm. are certainly not above, right? Yeah. The brain is an intricate, complicated, Mm. incredible mechanism. We can get hung up on those negative thoughts. But I think if we understand where they come from, it is a little easier to understand them, deal with them, appropriately place them in our brains, right? Mm. Because those types of negative thoughts, everyone deals with, but especially addicts. And sometimes they get hung up on just the negative thoughts over and over. Is that fair to to say? Yeah. (laughs) I feel like I have to gaslight my brain sometimes into not focusing on the negative, which is just basically like, David Bowie I just blast it (laughs) so I'm like okay I'm good I'm fine (laughs) but yeah I do fight my brain a lot and to the point where I know what's me and then what is my sick brain Mm. and so sometimes I have to differentiate which is which I love that yeah so if you wouldn't mind telling your story and maybe we'll interject if we have questions but we'd love to hear the start to finish not that there's a finish, but start to current. And we'd love to hear your wisdom. We'd love to hear your, uh, all your ideas. Share us your wisdom. Parents and families, advice for those that are suffering from addiction, especially young teens. So much of what we've learned is young people not really fully being mature yet to grasp everything and how much that affects the development of the young brain as well. Okay, I'll, I'll just start at the beginning. So I, I grew up not having my dad in my life. He got sent to prison when I was young, didn't see him for like a good 10 years. And then when I was about 14, I asked my mom if I could start spending time with my dad. I'd always yearned for him and I remember as a kid, Father's Day, I would cry all day. And I I just wanted my dad, and I could never have that. So finally, I could go see my dad and everything. Um, How how old were you when he left? Three. Do you have memories of him before that at all? Or was it just 
you knew that you missed the presence of a father in your home. Is it, was it mostly that? I think it was mostly that and seeing other kids with full families and me not having one as a kid, when you feel and see that the easiest thing to do is blame yourself. Mm. So that started this long line of self-hatred, just wondering why was it not good enough? Why didn't he want me? Which I now know is not true. Right. But yeah, so I grew up without my dad, got the opportunity to spend some time with him. When I was 14, like the minute I got over there, he gave me alcohol and like trying to, I guess, be the fun parent. My dad has a history of substance abuse issues and my mom wanted to protect me from that. And she always let me form my own opinion of him. He was dating this girl at the time, well, woman. She was maybe six, seven years older than me and they did drugs. So I thought, okay, if I do drugs with my dad and his girlfriend, then he'll love me. Then he'll want me around. Mm. And so that's what really started it. And then it was too late before I realized I'm addicted. I can't come off of this. So that had been going on for a little bit. I got my license when I was 16, got a car, and I would drive around under the influence more than I would like to admit. And one day I got in a really bad car accident. I ran my car off the road while under the influence, rolled my car three times, and then broke my arm. Had to have three surgeries. So I got a gnarly little scar and some metal over here. But oddly enough, that still didn't make me stop. And then during those surgeries, I was prescribed Percocet. So mm-hmm. instead of paying for it on the street, it was just given to me. So I was, I had three surgeries back to back in a year. So every day taking a Percocet for a year. And then when my arm is healing and it's done, where's my Percocet? Where's my meds? I got violent with my mom. I lost control. And yeah. <laughs> and one day two people came into my bedroom and said, Hey, your mom doesn't really know how to help you anymore. So we're here to help. And then they took me. I had no idea where I was going. I thought I was just going somewhere in North Carolina. But then they were like, we should probably fill up the rental before we go to the airport. And I'm like, what airport? Where are we going? And she was like, Salt Lake City, Utah. I about passed out. I was like, okay, what in the world is going on? My friends. The world was ending, but that place saved my life. 100%. So at what point did your mom know that you had an issue with drugs? Like how old were you when she knew what was going on? I think maybe 16. Okay. So there was a couple good couple years before she knew what was happening at your dad's. Before it got out of control, I'd go over there every weekend and I'll keep it over there. Yeah. Um, But then when I couldn't moderate the substance use, yeah. Send me with little bags of pills to get me through the week. Yeah. Um, yeah. It just, it just got to, a, to, it was a lot. I was addicted. I'd overdosed once in my dad's care. And even then I was like, oh, I should probably stop, but I can't. Yeah. Um, so I think for me, I had to be plugged out of my environment. I had to take a step back and say, Hey dude, you are ruining your life. And I'm glad I caught it early, but I wish I caught it earlier because doing cocaine when your brain isn't fully developed is not good for you. So I still, I still deal with some of the effects of that today. Like I feel like fully there sometimes. (laughs) Um, So the two people, 
sorry. Oh, no, the two you're people fine. that came into your room, they were from Stillwater TA. Yes. They, they came to you and said, okay, we're going to take you to treatment. Yeah. Okay. And what were the first three months like at the treatment program? Oh, man, I didn't do anything. I sat on my tail. Once I first got there, I was 17. Then they said, when you're 18, you can leave. And it was about seven months until I turned 18. So I was like, I'll just write it out. They can't uh, do anything. And then once I was on like month four, I was like, okay, I've got issues. <laughs> Let's work on them. And I'd still wanted like drugs. Like I'd still craved that. But then once I really, really got to work in, I realized that I just needed love for my father. I don't yeah. need tools. And now I can provide that love for myself. I'll, I feel like that'll always be missing, but I can love myself enough to where it, it just doesn't bother me like that. Like I know in that case, I'm not the problem. So. so you feel like your issues began with missing your father, being sad that you didn't have what your classmates had. And you feel like that was the very beginning and then just yeah. steamrolled with use having negative things happen and then becoming addicted yeah and I think negative self-esteem also has a lot to do with it absolutely um, I just felt like from a very young age like I would say to myself I hate Abby why do I have to be Abby just mm -hmm. not understanding I'll tell you why it's awesome to be Abby because <laughs> she's awesome she thank awesome. you and strong <laughs> Thank you. And tender and loving and funny and wonderful. That's right. So there. Right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank so you. if you could talk to yourself back then, or if you had an adult or someone were to come to you, whether it be a teacher, is there anything you could have heard that would have helped you in your journey or would have prevented you from going down the path you went down? Or do you think it was almost inevitable. Yeah. I think it was inevitable, but also necessary. I had to figure out for myself who my father was. Okay. Because he'd done this to my mom. This is just his track record. Yeah. But I really do appreciate that my mom let me for my own opinion and didn't right. talk terribly about him. But yeah, I think it needed to happen and I'm okay with that because I wouldn't be here without it. I wouldn't have known Emma. I wouldn't have had so many wonderful friends. Yeah. And support systems. And I wouldn't have ever worked through my stuff, you know? So, so when we were there, I've got PTSD. So we had a trauma group. That was the most gut wrenching group, but it helped me more than anything to know that I'm not alone in these feelings. I'm not alone in being a survivor and I can thrive after this. Also EMDR therapy was extremely helpful for me. Yeah. I was actually shocked at how much it helped. Equine therapy, loved it because horses will mirror your emotions. You have to face yourself. And mm -hmm. I really enjoyed that. And um, Emma hated it. <laughs> <laughs> Emma hated the horses. <laughs> they were stinky, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's so good. They were helping you. That's awesome. Yeah. They put me with a horse. His name was Potato Chip. And he was notorious for pushing boundaries. And yeah. that's why they put me with him. So I would be able to say, hey, no, I'm in charge. Yeah. This, this is my house. This is what we're going to do. Yeah. So it just helped me stand up and be a person, you know? Yeah. So you leave Stillwater and mm -hmm. then what? Oh, man. 
This is the only bad thing I have to say is the gap from when you graduate to when you go home is the most terrifying thing in the world. You don't know who you're going to see, what you're going to see, what's going to happen, what you've missed. It's a whole whirlwind of emotions. But the best thing I could have done for myself at that time, and I did, was cut everybody off. Everybody I knew in my hometown, we're done. Because my sobriety is more important than hee-hee-ha-ha fun time, you know? So. Did that include your dad? Oh, yeah. I gave him a few chances, but I haven't spoken to him since 2019. Yeah. Yeah. Like I just, that's all you can do. Um, Yeah. Sometimes it's unavoidable. That is so mature of you, Abby, to be able to at 18, to be able to say, I've got to cut off everybody before this life because you knew that they weren't healthy, that they weren't contributing anything to your family. That's amazing at that age. I'm like flabbergasted. That's amazing. And, And did you even cut off people that Maybe they weren't contributing to the negative behavior, but they certainly weren't encouraging positive behavior. Yeah. I actually had a situation when I came home that scared me into doing it. I was out riding with some of my, I called them safe friends because I knew they didn't use or anything. And there's just a severe thunderstorm came up in small country towns. Everyone's riding in their truck and all that. So everyone with the truck pulled into a four-wheeler dealership under this big awning. And while they're waiting for the storm to go through, um, someone started passing around a bottle of Xanax. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. We are not doing this. I was shaking. I felt like I was going to throw up. So as soon as the storm cleared, I was like, can you take me to my car? Scared the living crap out of me. And I was like, yeah, I'm done. I can't, even if they're safe, I cannot. And I'm so thankful that I did. Because if I wouldn't have done that, I probably would be dead today. Yeah. Yeah. So for you, Stillwater was your turning point. You never mm-hmm. had to look back or be, I'm sure there's still triggers. I'm sure you still have a desire. I do, I do but it's not a desire for the substance. Okay. Say more. I, so I can like note, I can recognize what I'm feeling, like anxiety, sadness, grief, even. It'll make me want to numb myself emotionally. Yeah. But I know that I can't do that and I need to talk about it. So instead of, I think I can go this way, talk about it, be okay, go this way, not talk and use and be dead. Like it, it's life or death for me. That's yeah. how seriously I take it. Yeah. That's amazing. That's so amazing <laughs> and unusual, especially like I said, at your age, because brains aren't fully developed until mid to late twenties. So for you to be able to be conscious enough, and like you said, that drug use had probably done some damage and mentally, emotionally to your brain, right? You were saying that you felt some effects from that. So even with that, it's just absolutely mind blowing and amazing. Do you have any tips for parents? And siblings and family and friends and anybody who really loves someone else and spends time with them. Yes, this is actually something I did with Emma and I'm glad I did it because I don't have any regrets. Oh man. So anytime there was a relapse or a mistake or a slip up, it's okay. How can we fix it? What can we do? Because being an addict myself, I know that 
the, oh, how could you? Why did you do this? Blah, 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 blah. It only makes it worse. So just ask how you can help. And I'm sure they will tell you how you can help them and how you can assist. And just focus on how you're feeling, not the actions, because you've got to talk about the feelings before anything else can be solved. So do you remember Emma asking for what she needed from you? Like when she would relapse, do you remember what was her most common? Which we really need to get rid of the word relapse. It has such a negative connotation. Mm-hmm. A friend of ours likes to say setback. I like that better. Yeah. Because everybody, when anyone hears relapse, whether you struggle with addictions, self-harm, any type of behavior that's really hard to overcome, anybody hears the word relapse and it's a drastic response to it. Yeah, it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, like a... Yeah. But yeah. the reality is they're setbacks because in life we have them all the time. We rarely use that word unless it has yeah. to do with addiction, right? That is very true. So we're going to try and get people to say setback from now on. Yeah, me to say setback. (laughs) And we're going to start with my lovely assistant here, Mrs. Dyer. So sorry, continue. Oh, you're okay. I would also recommend, I know everyone says you need an outlet, but everyone does need an outlet. If I had someone there to just hand me a canvas and some paint when I wanted to use so I could get my feelings out that way instead of suppressing myself. I'll offer up outlets, just suggest different things until something sticks. That is helpful because art helps me a ton. So like a positive behavior to replace the coping mechanism, which is usually mm-hmm. substances uh, yeah, or like other actions, right? Something physical. Yeah, like some, sometimes I'll get the feeling like, oh no, I feel like I need to numb, like I need to get rid of my feelings immediately, which is what I would usually use. I'm like, okay, what can I do? Can I create something? Can I watch a video? Literally anything. And sometimes I'll just pace to do something so I don't have those thoughts. And so it doesn't snowball deeper. Yeah. But I've also learned healing, again, is not linear, especially with addiction. I think about it all the time. Well, it's on my mind frequently. I'm interested in the how did we get here? just as America and just all that, but it's always on my mind. I want to help everyone that I can help people get out of it. Yeah. However I can, because it's it's dark and it's scary. I don't want anyone to to feel that, you know? Yeah. So do you have things in place where the head of time, let's say someone has a phone addiction Mm -hmm. and they find themselves in the bathroom for an hour sometimes because they just get right. I know people that will just leave their phone outside the bathroom. So they use it in a a normal two to three minutes, right? Mm -hmm. Do you have things in place that you do to keep you, I guess, on track? Yeah. So I've kind of like for your bathroom example, just switch the phone with a magazine, with a book you're interested in. I found that it's all about not necessarily replacing the addiction, but just replacing what you do when you feel like you need to use. Yeah. And just having a plan in place. If you know you're going to feel like you need to numb or like you feel like a setback is about to happen, reach out to your friend. Hey, I feel like this is going to happen. 
if I do A, B, C, and D, come check on me, call me. Like my boyfriend today, he wanted to do something. I was like, I, I think I just need you here just in case this podcast is rough. Yeah. It's always having a plan in place. Yeah. So you don't know if it was going to bring some stuff up that would be yeah. hard to sit with after. And Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that. So being like kind of pre-aware of, okay, yeah. this is my history. This is what's happened in the past. And this is what would be helpful for me. So have you done any 12-step program after Stillwater? Oh, man. I attempted to. Then I was very triggered by the people coming in that were still using, were just court-ordered to be there. Yeah. Didn't really care. And I was so freshly out of treatment that it terrified me. And Mm. I couldn't go back. But I've been in therapy working on it and working through my stuff. I did do the 12-step workbook in treatment. I find that the more you go through the steps, the more you find out about yourself. Same with whenever you reread like Brene Brown or something. Yeah. (laughs) So I do like to look back every now and then. I'm like, oh, this applies to me now, but it didn't before. So it's just, yeah, it's a good resource to have. But the groups in my area were a little terrifying for me. Yeah. I I can see that. Um, We struggled with that with Emma as well, Um, trying to find a 12-step program where she wouldn't be around people who were in the same boat, Mm -hmm. but understood what she was going through. So that was really hard for us to figure out. Of course, she was an adult and we had to let her make her own decisions, but it was hard for us. Each of us would go sometimes to like an NA or an AA meeting and think, where's the happy medium? I love NA, love AA. They have been phenomenal and for Emma before, after, during, but there were times where like, how do we get her out of the circle of people who are doing the same thing over and over? We also struggled with hearing people say over and over, I'm an addict, I'm an addict, I'm an addict. And, And as much as I think that there's some safety there to think like that, many people that would stay focused on the fact that they're only an addict yeah yeah that was their focus of who they were and we really aren't those things very true very true and so there's a delicate line between always saying hey i'm susceptible to addictions compared to i'm an addict that's who i am deal with when i can only be with those that understand me There's a delicate line there, right? Yeah. I prefer to say I'm in recovery because I'll always be an addict, but I will be recovering from that the rest of my life. But I'm so much more than that, you know? Yeah. It's a teeny tiny speck of what makes me, me. What's the advice you have for families? See the person for the person and not the behavior, but know that the behavior does contribute to the feelings of the person. So you can see, oh, they're just an addict. This is a human being that is hurt at their core that just needs help. They need people. They need love. Just be there. Spend time with them. But only if it's safe for the both of you. Because that's a really big, important part of that. I know, especially for me and Emma, there was a few years where we didn't see each other because it wasn't safe. But when it was, it was the most beautiful, amazing, best time of my life. (laughs) 
but just be there and don't give up on them because they need to see that someone's in their corner and that people are rooting for them. And what do you say to those that are struggling in regards to the people around them that love them? I, I think that, so let's be really candid. People can, in the middle of their addiction are extremely selfish. Granted, a lot of it isn't really their fault because of what those substances do to the brain and the chemistry and all that kind of stuff. And, and the reason I would love to hear your take is a few months ago, we had somebody who was an addict reach out and say, I never really grasped the effects of my family. You, do you know what I mean? Yeah. What it was doing on the family. Yeah. Same. <laughs> I feel like to this day, I'm still repairing relationships with my mom and my little sister because she hated me for a very long time, but we're friends now. <laughs> so just hold out hope. Were there times where you were caught up in it and people tried to help and did it ever oh, make yeah. you, did it ever oh, make yeah. you angry? Did it? Oh yeah. I was, I threw a chair at my mom in the midst of that. And when I think about it now, I just want to break down and cry because she didn't deserve that. Boundaries, that's the best thing that you can do is if they're saying, hey, I need $50, but it can only be cash. Yeah. Okay, I can't give you cash, but if you need food, I can give you a gift card, you know, like. Sure. Just, just be there. And then you do have to modify some behaviors when you're dealing with that. Y'all know what I mean, but yeah, I think it's amazing that you were able, it's, it's also shows your maturity to be able to step back from the relationship with Emma when she wasn't healthy and almost be like, I'm here when you're healthy, when it's healthy for me to be with mm -hmm. you. So I think families can do the same thing. Is it much harder because they need a place to live and all of that stuff? Absolutely. But there were definite times where like, if you're choosing to use, you just can't do it here then we're just going to have to ask you to leave. And luckily in our case, it was always, I guess, am amicable. Is that the right word? It understood. Was, yeah, it wasn't, she wasn't ever like, how dare you? How could you? She understood where we were coming from, but, but that's really hard for a mom and a dad to be like, well, you're just going to have to couch surf or be in your car or be homeless for a time until you're ready for help. But, but I love that your maturity was so much that you were like, you know what, when you're healthy, then I want you back in my life. So and she never, you know, she never left my life. I had <laughs> plenty of nights where I would stay up on the other side of the country, just sobbing and just praying that like, you know, that she could make it. So it's hard. It's really hard, but you just got to love them from a distance. Yeah. And make sure that they feel your love. Yeah. Always say, always, just always let them know. Yeah. Always ask, how can I help? What can I do for you? So would you say what would be helpful and healthy is if a family, even though they set these boundaries and they have to ask their children, it's, it, we're usually speaking of children here to leave that you should still call and text yeah. and let them know that, Hey, we eat three meals a day. You're welcome to join us for dinner. You're welcome to come do laundry. You're welcome to, you know, come walk the dogs. It's Without just, if that behavior is consistent, you just can't live in the home and with the family. 
Would you say that's a pretty safe boundary to set, but also a loving way to do that? I think it's safe for everybody, just depending on who is in your home, who you do need to protect from that, and even yourself. I've recently learned that it's okay to say no and to be selfish sometimes and take care of yourself. So I think if it's necessary, then yeah, sometimes it just has to happen, but you can't just leave them in the dust. You got to let them know. I love you. I care about you. I want you to come back. When you're ready, my door's always open. Yeah. That kind of thing. Well, you are always that for Emma. And we really appreciate that you were there for her. Even like you said, all the way across the country, you were always in North Carolina, right? After you left. And I hate to have you make this emotional for you again, but you were a bright light. And she needed that. She needed somebody to at times give her that tough love and say, this isn't okay. But you were always there for her. And we appreciate that a lot. Are you aware that she loved you dearly? Do you know that? Yeah. (laughs) You know, (laughs) so Emma will reach out to me and Becky in the form of 444s, (laughs) in form of angel numbers. When I went to the hospital because I was suicidal, the diesel price at the gas station right by my house was 444. <laughs> and like they had a peer support specialist come in and talk to me. And he pointed out this tattoo me and Emma got for our sobriety. It's based yeah. off the serenity prayer. And the year we met is underneath. He pointed it out. And he's like, see, you've got the courage. You can do it. And I lost it. I knew that was Emma. Yeah. She's still here for me today. She's still the sun, the moon, and the stars to me. You know, she still shows love. (sighs) I love that. She is. I love that you know that, that it's possible to hear from our loved ones on the other side because they're still interested in our life. They still want to know what's going on. They still want us to succeed. They are sad when we're sad. They're happy when we're happy. And I love that you have that with her because absolutely she for sure is the family member and friend that is like, I'm going to make my presence known and I'm going to let you guys know that I love you. And that I'm thinking about you. And so I love that. Thank you for sharing that, Abby. That's very sweet. Yeah. She reaches out in music. My therapist told me she's not here on earth anymore in the relationship. She's still your best friend. This just changed. At first I was like, that's baloney. That's so dumb, but it's not like, yeah. Emma Grace shows up for all of us when we need her. Yeah. Like she always has. And I love that. I love that about her. What do you do when you hear Elton John come on the radio? <laughs> that's, uh, anything name a hundred Michael Jackson. <laughs> you know, the one that gets me every time is man in the mirror. Cause that was her graduation song. Yeah, that was the, what you guys call that? The David. A uh, cradle. Cradle, yeah. <laughs> it's like cradled you into the new world. <laughs> Your new life. I love that. I remember that day like it was yesterday. Was Me too. My mama saw a dove fly over during Emma's cradle, and we knew that was Gannel. Yeah. Just the way Emma talked about it, that was Gannel. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. You sure it wasn't a sea turtle that slowly walked by? <laughs> I am positive. <laughs> I love that. 
So now that you are where you are thriving mm-hmm. and you are doing amazing, what is it that keeps you on that path? What is it that keeps you wanting to stay healthy, wanting you to stay in a good place? Well, number one, staying consistent with seeing my psychiatrist and my therapist taking my meds. I'm very wary of the people that I'm around just because of everything I've been through. And I have to figure out if you're a super, super safe person, then yes. But if I have the slightest inkling that something's off. Yeah. What about a, what about a relatively strict schedule? Being in a routine definitely helps. I'm still working on that because my meds are being tweaked every month. So (laughs) it's just hard getting back in the swing of, a routine but something me and Emma always did was you just have to have a cute girly drink sometimes you know you just need a little Starbies or a little coffee (laughs) no if I am rotting in bed hating myself hating the world I can look forward to my little drinky drink to get out of the house it's just small things you've got to reward yourself for when you're doing good just little reasons to keep going yeah that's what motivates me a lot of the time yeah I love that yeah sometimes it is the little things you have to look for so I love that that's good advice awesome any other questions or any other advice you it's on your mind or we just want the world to know we think that you're incredibly brave definitely to share your story is awesome and helpful this is going to be so helpful for others who have been through it and or their children are going through it. I promise you, Abby, your story today will help at least at least one person. Right. And probably more. Yeah. Hope for so. sure. Yeah. I want to think all this wasn't for nothing, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I've always known I wanted to help people. I just didn't know how. But after knowing and loving Emma, I feel like this this may be it. You know, like I feel something gnawing in me. Like I need to help the people that have been through what I have and what Emma has and what y'all have, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, this is the start, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and then my one last piece of advice to everyone. But I, I went to a few NA meetings with Emma and they would always say, keep coming back because it works. If you work it because you're worth it, something like that. But <laughs> keep coming back. Even if you're, you yourself are not an addict, read up on it, educate yourself, see what you can do to help, but just keep coming back to check on them for the addicts. Keep coming back to your meetings. Keep coming back to your friends. Everyone loves you. We love you. And you can get through it. Yeah. And two more things. Two more. (laughs) There's always, always help. And there's always, always hope. <laughs> I listen. <laughs> I you, she listen. She knows. She's like, I knew the answers. <laughs> I love that. Well, we couldn't be more proud. Seriously. Thank you. I'm proud yeah. of you guys too. Y'all have come a very long way. And I know Emma's proud of you too. Well, I love that. You're brave for sharing your story and Thank keep you. doing all the awesome things you're doing and putting into the world because you're a light, Abby. We're thankful for that. Thank you. And don't forget to reach out to us when you have your dark moments. That's right. Put us on your safe list. We're, the, we're on the safe list. Super safe list. I love we're a text it. away. Thank you, guys.
How darling was Abby. Could you just listen to her Southern accent all day? I love it so much. I love that she's giving back and I love just the light that she is to everybody. She was always that to Emma and she definitely is that to everybody who knows her. She has been working in healthcare for several years and is um, currently applying to treatment facilities and treatment centers, which I think is wonderful because she'll be able to give her advice and her experience in being in recovery. And I think that's just invaluable to people currently going through it. So yay, Abby. Um, as always, remember to please like and share, thumbs up on YouTube, all of that good stuff so that we can reach more people in need of hearing this podcast. And we, again, want to take you out on a recording of Emma singing and playing the piano with the message that we believe she wants all of you to hear. Mm -hmm.